0: So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy The Politics of Everything. My interviewee for episode 27 is Dr. Michael Kimmel. He is a well-known authority on gender, men and masculinities, even been named by the Guardian UK as one of the world's most prominent male feminists. I saw him speak at TEDx Sydney in 2016 and was enthralled by his common touch, his wisdom, and often heartbreaking yet relevant insights, backed by his impressive academic, academic kudos. Among his many books are Manhood in America, Angry White Men, and a bestseller, Guyland The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men. Today, fittingly, we are sharing the microphone to unpack the politics of raising men. Welcome, Michael. Well, it's
1: nice to be here, Amber. Thank you.
0: So really briefly, how did you really become engaged with this idea of gender equality and why did you decide to make it your primary area of expertise and study?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I think that uh, everyone would agree that gender equality is right, it's fair... It's just, it's the essence of democracy, equality. We all believe in those values. So in some respects, I don't think it's a particularly exciting question for me to answer, like, how did I become so different? I mean, I feel like I'm just saying what everybody believes. It's really not that complicated. I first became interested in this because the women in my life were pushing me to think through questions about gender equality and gender inequality and the effect of gender inequality on them in the workplace, as students, uh, as moms, the way that they interacted in public. So my feeling about this was there's really nothing special about it. Gender equality is really simply right and fair and just. So once I started thinking about it this way, once I started thinking about the, the, um, the idea of the moral imperative, I began to sort of make you know, give a talk about it. And, uh, and from there, I ended up teaching a course on masculinity, the first course in the state of New Jersey in the U.S. about that masculinity. When How long
0: w- ago was that, Michael?
1: Oh, that was 1985. Wow. Okay. Right. So um, I, when I was living in California as a graduate student, I actually had started an organization called uh, Men Against Rape. In Santa Cruz, California, and then I started was part of the very beginning of what became the national organization for men against sexism, NOMAS, in in the states in 1980 or 81. But when I got my first teaching job, 84, 85, I, I offered this course on masculinity, and it went, It was really um, transformative for me. But of course, when you go to teach a course, what's the first thing you do? You go to the library and look for the books you want to assign. And there weren't in eighty
0: five. You did, but now you would just Google it, probably.
1: Yes, in eighty five you went to the library. Now you don't go to the library. But the reality was there weren't very many books, and so um, so I said, well, if I'm going to do, if I'm going to teach this course, I actually kind of have to write the books that I want to use to uh, to teach so that 's how I started so so in a sense the the, the key I think trajectory the, the, the moral I take from that story is I started out with a kind of political commitment to equality, moved to teaching, and then moved to research. So my research has always been connected to the political commitments
0: that 's fantastic, so you have lectured in more than three hundred colleges, universities, and high schools across the planet. What have you learned to be the most common theme amongst young men that you've met? I mean, is there anything that really stands out for you that, you know, despite where they could be, which country, what stage of life they're at, what are the th- some of the things they're grappling with?
1: Well, I think I think the um, in the industrial countries, in the OECD countries, Um, I've just come from a a trip to New Zealand uh, where I was working in some boys' schools. I've been at some boys' schools here in Australia. I've worked with uh, university students here and in Canada, U.S., Europe. And the thing I would say that it characterizes so many of the guys that I meet is um, they kind of are drifting. Um, They don't really – I mean, if you talk to university women – they have everything planned out, you know? Um, my, my women, my female students can tell me um, how old they'll be when they have their first kid. Uh, answer, 28. Um, and the reason for that is because they are thinking, reasoning backward from what they anticipate to be the closing of the reproductive window late 30s so they know that they want to have their first kid at 28 their second one at about 30 or 31 they want to be able to get keep their careers going that means they have to look for a serious relationship around 26 um, which means that they have to get their career going by around 23 so they have it all planned out right the men on the other hand they say um you know i ask them where you what's your life going to look like in 10 years now they're 18 19 they say i don't know uh i guess i'll have a job uh maybe i'll be married i mean they haven't thought through purposefully which is why i say they're drifting and part of what my book island was about is this, this stage of development between adolescence and adulthood in which young people are really um sort of finding their way a decade taking a decade longer to hook on to career, family, mortgage, etc. You know, in my mom's era, it was 20, age twenty. Now it's close to thirty. So it's, so people are saying you know when people say thirty is the new twenty, they're right.
0: Absolutely. And why is this an issue? I guess you could sort of say, oh well, they'll find their own, they'll work it out. But maybe they're not working it out.
1: Well, I think I, I think we do them a great disservice if we don't um, if we don't help them with this kind of drifting. I think, I, don't think that, I think this isn't exactly on them. I think this is also on us. I think we have to engage in some kind of conversation with them about where they're going, how they're constructing their lives. Um, there are very few resources because most of us say exactly as you just said, oh, they'll get it. They'll sort it. It'll be okay. And that's what they're saying. But my feeling is that there's another variable in there that, you're, that we don't take into account, which is how much of their behavior is being relentlessly policed by other guys. How, be, how they walk, how they talk, how they dress, how they move, what they study, whether they study, how much they study. um, All of these things are being constantly policed so that boys learn from their parents and their teachers that being good in school is a good thing. But boys learn from other boys that academic disengagement is a way to prove your masculinity. How little you care about school is a way to say, I'm a bloke. So my feeling is they're hearing two different messages. They're hearing a message from us. They're hearing a message from their teachers, from their parents and the wider society. You wanna study hard, you wanna get ahead. And they're hearing a message from their, their mates that actually undercuts that. So that's where I feel like we do them a great disservice if we're passive. That means that other voice is the only voice.
0: That's very fascinating. To narrow it down a little bit more um, to Australia, because we're here and a lot of my audience uh, are Australian listeners. In Australia, are we any different when it comes to defining what's masculine and, and perhaps how men, young men particularly, are, are viewing women and you talked about the education piece, but broadly speaking, you know, that mm. kind of sexism. I and mean, there is a stereotype about an Australian sporty, blokey male who's tanned and bronzed and not so much now. We've got a lot of BC and other issues. But when I was growing up, that was the beach sure. kind of hero. And that was a really masculine man. And he didn't speak much. And he did a lot of grunting, but he played a lot of sport and right. might have drunken a bit and had a good time. But there wasn't necessarily a sensitivity piece in there. I mean, is this different? To other places, or is Australia just one of many countries? No, I think that
1: this? I think that uh, persists. I think that that's there. What I think has happened is not that there is a, um, a, a a break, and suddenly they have embraced a new a new image of masculinity. You know, American men have not you know rejected Vin Diesel in favor of Ryan Gosling. I mean, but here's what I think has happened for years, for 20, 30 years, we. Um, researchers talked about uh, men in this way. We said there's a growing gap between what they think it means to be a man, which is remaining constant, the description you just gave, and, um, and what they're actually doing. Because at the same time that they have all this sporty, grunty, drunken, bro culture thing, they're also doing more childcare. They're also better friends with women. They're also having much more egalitarian relationships with women. They are much more accepting of women as their teammates, their colleagues, their co-workers, their supervisors. So so we talked about this growing gap between the ideology, which you described, which didn't change, and their behaviors, which were changing. In the past four or five years, what we've noticed is that there's a be- there's a beginning of a change in the ideology as well. Yes, of course, they're still just the same blokey guys that you were describing, and they also say, "Well, loving and being nurturing toward my family, that's part of my masculinity. Being there and you know you know coaching my daughter's soccer team is just as masculine as you know talking about rugby with my with my friends, and so they're." They, they're, they're beginning to shift that ideology very slowly. So it's not like one model has replaced another. They've actually just added some stuff to it, and now they're being more strategic. So I'm, when I'm hanging out with my guy friends, here's the way I, 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 I interact. But when I'm with my family, with no loss of masculinity, I do not feel like a wimp, I am completely there with them.
0: And that's a positive thing. I know from my experience, it's great to have a you know a, a husband, a partner in life who's hands on. My dad wasn't particularly. He was a t- typical, you know, man of his era, and went to work and did the stuff. And he was a great provider financially, but emotionally, perhaps not so much. And yeah, I think, I
1: think this is the this is the key, though, a- a- Amber. I, I really do. Um, I, I think when you know when we tell young people, and especially when grandparents tell young people, when I was your age, I think young people think to themselves, you were never my age. And they're right. My grandfather's world looked like Don Drapers. My father's world looked like Don Drapers. And young people today, that world is unrecognizable. What I say to young boys is your grandfathers would not recognize the world that you live in. A world with Female friends, where you talk about things, a world in which every arena that you go to, whether it is medicine or law or corporate life or, or, or a business school or tech, there's women everywhere in sports. The whole world for my grandfather was a locker room, right? And that world is completely gone now. In fact, my grandfather owned a, um, a men's clothing store, only males would work there. And in the bathroom, I used to work there at Christmas time to like wrap boxes and stuff like that to help out in the store. My grandfather, the bathroom in the in, in the store, which was only used by the employees, had Playboy pinups all over it, all over it, ceiling, walls, everything. That was the first pornography I ever saw um, when I was like 11 and there was, you know, and I went into the bathroom. I mean that would be inconceivable in fact that would be illegal now. Absolutely.
0: That- I still remember going to the mechanics and it was you know with my with dad, the calendars. The calendars and they were sort of your page 3 girls and yeah, that sort yeah, of thing yeah, yeah, and yeah. that was completely confronting but completely normal all in one. It was
1: all and in one and, hit. and so what we used to take for granted as normal is no longer seen as normal. And what we used to to think of as completely abnormal women on corporate boards for example has now become normal. So That's why I say the world of young men today would be unrecognizable to their grandfathers. So we have to figure out a way to engage them and to talk with them about how their lives are different.
0: No, I think that's really powerful. So I saw you speak at TEDx Sydney last year and you your talk was entitled The Boy Crisis. Right. And in this forum you were very vocal about how, for example, feminized our mainstream schooling system is and perhaps it's failing many young boys. And I have two young boys, so I have a vested interest. They're four and a half and eight and a half, one at school, one not quite. And I and I value a broad education. So I think I'd love to know from your experience, you know, things haven't sort of shifted in the mainstream education system in Australia since the 80s and 90s when I went through primary school where, you know, girls kind of sat still and had the neat handwriting and the boys were sort of running around and <laughs> disruptive, yeah. you know, and right. maybe they were just being boys. But why does this even matter? I mean, why do, why do the way we educate our boys at this early stage matter?
1: Well, there's, there's two answers to that question. And I, and I do agree with you that uh, boys are not doing uh, as well as girls. Um, We know this in terms of attendance. Uh, 60% of of Australian university students are female. We know this in terms of their achievement. Girls have caught up to boys in math and science and STEM fields, and they're surging way ahead of boys in English and and languages. Um, In the U.S., 75% of high school valedictorians last year were, were female, 75%. So the girls are doing better. And there, there are more of them. And the third part is that the boys are suffering. They're, they are um, more likely to be, they're like five times more likely to be suspended, seven times more likely to be expelled, three times more likely to take their own life. Um, you know, a, a, a significant percentage of Australian boys will uh, get into a fight every year. So, so, this is, so, so we know that the, this is the dimension of the crisis. Fewer boys, not doing as well with more behavioral problems. So what can we do to help well, them? Well, okay, so 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 the first an- first question we have to ask though is why is this happening? I don't think that that is because schools have become a more feminized environment. When we say that, what we're saying is that we have now begun to pay attention to girls and that girls may have some different learning styles. Now that benefits boys. Why? Because what we're doing is we're paying more attention to individual learning styles. You cannot teach boys and girls with a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter model. And girls were the first ones to present us with that reality. But now it's also helping boys. There are many boys who are excelling, and then there are many boys who can't sit still, and you can't give them all the same one-size-fits-all model of education. You have to pay attention to some of those individual differences. Here's what we know. The differences among boys is far greater than the differences between boys and girls. The differences among girls is far greater than any mean differences you'd find between boys and girls. So we want to pay attention to the whole range, and that, and we're doing that. We're paying more attention to ADHD, three times more boys than girls. We're, t- we're paying more attention to childhood depression, about even, we're talking about behavioral problems, uh, uh, you know, uh, all kinds, and more boys than girls. So we're paying more attention to those individual styles. I think that that can't be but good. So what's the remedy?
0: The silver bullet, Michael.
1: Well, here it is. I I think it's very obvious. It's not these feminist women and the attention to girls that is making it difficult for boys. It is the fact that um, we don't pay attention to how masculinity Affects boys' experience in school. When I said that to you before, Amber, that that these boys believe hear from their mates that academic disengagement is a sign of their masculinity, you nodded your head. We all know that that's true. You want to make you want to make the world better for boys in school. We have to challenge that. We have to undermine that. We have to provide a counter narrative. When boys say how you know well. You know, you care too much about school. We're going to go play, right? You have to be able to... The boy has to have something else in his ear which says, I don't have to prove myself to them. I'm okay as I am. I have to study for a test.
0: That's fascinating. So, so on that... So what we need, yeah. what we
1: need is academic disengage, a disengagement to no longer be a sign of your manhood.
0: I think that's powerful. And I suppose we're really big in this country on single-sex schools in terms of the yeah. elite schools... Any thoughts on those? I mean, oh do they God, work? Yeah. I mean, it's huge, I know. And I and I went I had both experiences, primary school mixed, high school elite all-girls sporting school. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I'm my husband's similar experience. He's been to all-boys schools and, you know, mixed-gender schools. We're going to send our kids to co-ed schools. We're not really big on the whole Okay. Different education.
1: I think it's a, it's I think it's a very mixed bag. Um, I think we live in a co-educational world. And so the single-sex school will do children a disservice if they don't prepare them adequately to live in a co-ed world. So let's talk about the single-sex school for girls for a moment. What do girls learn at a single-sex school?
0: I remember sitting still. I remember learning how to get out of a sports car and have your knees together because, you know, you might need to do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally. No, that's right. Etiquette classes.
0: I mean, it was the 90s, but which fork to use at the dinner table in case you were dining with a prime minister?
1: Right, which which of course every girl has. I've used that so much. But I, know, I mean I've sure. also
0: got a fantastic to be fair, I got a really great solid education in the classics right. and all the things I needed. But
1: well here's so here's here's what I hear. Girls say what they learn at a, an all-girls school is we can do anything boys can do. We can study math, we can study science, we can do STEM courses, we can take leadership, we can run the student government. Right? That's what so girls feel empowered by that.
0: I would say that's true.
1: So here's what boys learn at, at boys' schools. No, they can't. Girls can't do what we do. They just can't do the sports. They just can't do the, they they don't have what it takes. So girls' schools um, basically serve as a kind of antidote to gender inequality. While boys' schools can foster a kind of male arrogance that they, the boys, are entitled to and that girls are not. So if girls are learning that they can do anything boys can do, then girls' schools serve a very valuable purpose in preparing girls for a co-educational world. But if boys learn that girls can't do it, then they are being ill-prepared for an increasingly co-educational world. So what we have to do is we have to work with boys' schools to help boys engage with the ideas of gender equality. So my challenge to boys' schools, I've worked with several... My challenge to boys' schools is a little bit different than what I would say to girls' schools. If you want to remain relevant in an increasingly co-educational world, it has to do with the prepositions you use to describe your, your school. You, you are, of course, the school of boys, demographically, big deal. And probably at your best, you think of yourself as a school for boys, right? Purposive, educating boys. I think that's not enough. I think you have to be a school about boys, I think you have to be a school about gender. I think you have to talk about masculinity. You know that the girls' schools are talking about femininity. They're talking about what it means to be a woman in the modern age, whether it's getting out of a car with your knees locked or it's getting the Nobel Prize in physics, right? They're talking about how do you balance work and family. They're talking about how do you develop a career path, knowing that you want to be a mom, all of these things. But boys are, learn- are don't get any of that sort of stuff. So my feeling is you need to be about masculinity. What holds boys back? What can enable them? Because the boys' school, we have two models of the boys' school in our culture. We have one model that's basically dead poet society. Oh, in the absence of the distraction of girls, they can study art and literature and poetry and music, and they can express their feelings. That's one model. And the other model is Lord of the Flies that it is a relentless hierarchy, competitive, brutal, bullying culture in which status is determined by all kinds of things that you have no control over. So I think we have to choose. We have to help boys' schools become more dead poet society and less Lord of the Flies. And that means challenging the male arrogance that very often accompanies the all-boys experience. I
0: love it. So powerful. Changing tack a little bit, um, the rise of suicide in, men, in Australia is worrying. Um, our ABS statistics from a couple of years ago reveal that our suicide rate is the highest it's been in a decade. And in 2015, 3,027 people ended their own lives in Australia, which we only have 22 million people. So that's, that's huge.
1: That's New York.
0: Yeah, so it's (laughs) basically 12.6 people. How do you do the two I'm not sure. Every 100,000 people. Um, And for boys and men, that's even more frightening because the average age that people are committing suicide in the male demographic is 44, and it's the leading cause of death amongst 15 to 44-year-old men. Why is this the case and how can we help them?
1: Well, um, so here's the thing. Suicide is far more common among males than females. Um it's also true that among teenagers uh attempted suicide is higher for females. So you have to ask the question, why don't girls finish? And why do boys finish? In the US it's a very simple answer. Girls use pills, they tell a friend that they're doing it, and the friend calls somebody and they stop them because there's a few hours in between. Boys use guns. And they so don't the tell cry anybody. to help
0: pace works for the girls, but, but with it doesn't the boys, that's right.
1: So but but I think this is really worrying. And as you say, it's the, it's the leading cause of... The average age is 44. The single fastest demographic in the U.S. for suicide is white men in, in their 40s and 50s, white middle-class men. So the question then is, how do we... Um, if we know what boy culture is like, if we know the hierarchies and the shut, being shut down and never showing your feelings and being strong all the time and being powerful you can understand why so many boys feel like they don't measure up. And then they're constantly being policed by other boys and being bullied by other boys. So other boys can get to feel a little bit better by putting somebody else down. Um, the one major lesson I try to teach my son in all of this is you don't get big by making other people small. You make You, you become big by making other people big. I wish my president would learn this lesson. But saying that, I think that the, the key issue that psychologists talk about when we talk about suicide prevention is resilience. What predicts resilience? How do we foster resilience? How do we enable boys to feel that they, uh, that, that, you know, connected? Because if the whole idea of masculinity is to disconnect, to be self-contained, to never have to show your feelings, never show weakness, every one of us is going to fail. So my feeling is that we generate resilience by talking about what are the psychological relationships that predict resilience. And it turns out, here boys' schools could actually be very good on this. Turns out that it's having a good male friend. One male friend who really gets you, who knows you, who with whom you can be vulnerable. With, who, with whom you can basically be vulnerable enough to give them something And they won't betray you. They won't use that information to go raise their status with some other guy. So that is really important. The other variable, actually, is having a good female friend. Um, A girl friend. Not a girlfriend, but a girl who is a friend. Turns out that's really important also. And they are young people. You'll see it in your kids. Your kids probably have good friends who are girls right now.
0: Absolutely, in a way that we didn't. As even
1: exactly, you got a birthday party
0: of eight-year-olds; it's half boys, half girls.
1: I know, and now it's really interesting. But twenty-five years ago was when Harry met Sally. Twenty-five years ago, boys and girls couldn't be friends at all, and now it's it's routine, it's normal. And I have to say to your listeners, don't discourage this. It's the most important thing um, because it is about interpersonal equality between boys and girls, we make friends with not our boss, not our subordinate, but the word we use to describe our friends is our peers, our equals. So your children already have more experience with interpersonal gender equality than you did. Then, it's amazing. And then your parents did. I know. So, But boys will face a pressure to renounce their girlfriends, their girls' friends, um, and so we have to we have to provide them with the ability to sustain them. I I have an eighteen year old son. He's about to head off to university in two weeks. He still has friends from when he was four, girls who are his friends. And it is gorgeous to watch that. Um, and I would never in a million years talk about that as a way for him to prove his masculinity would be to, to betray them or renounce them. Um, you know, he's perfectly happy. He's, you know, ambitious, smart, uh, 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 you know, captain of the, the, the school soccer team. He, he sacrificed none of the masculinity stuff but it keeps him grounded in a, in a very different way.
0: That's very powerful. So thinking about feminism um, it is a bit of a dirty word, particularly in this country for some reason. Um, why does it matter that, you know, you call yourself a feminist? Why does it matter that we actually come out and say, whether we're men or women, we are feminists mm. and we we support this?
1: Well, this is an interesting question because for two reasons. First of all, because feminism has been, ever since the first w- woman uttered the word feminist, it has been under a concerted, deliberate, systematic attack. Um, so I think it's important to keep the word precisely because otherwise we are giving into that attack. So here's what feminism means to me. This is really simple, Amber. This is not complicated at all. Here's what it means. It, it means having, making one empirical observation about the world and then taking one moral position based on that empirical observation. This is all it is. Ready? Here's the empirical observation. Women and men aren't equal. Here's the moral position. And they should be. That's it. Simple. Did I say anything about shaving? Did I say anything about hating men? Did I say anything about not wanting to have sex with men, not being attractive, being lesbian? No. It is... That's all fluff. That's all bullshit. The truth is that feminism simply is an observation that women and men aren't equal and then saying, that's wrong. They should be.
0: That's it. It's human. It's a human rights thing, exactly. really. Exactly.
1: So I think, so all of the rest is mystification. All of the rest is an effort to discredit it. So I think we have to go back to the core idea of it, which is feminism is simply, a, you know, the moral position that women and men should be equal. Which, I mean, and I, frankly... If you were to pose it that way, if you were to say to Australians all across this country, is yes or no, women and men in this country are not equal? Overwhelmingly, they'd say, no, not they're not equal yet.
0: We know they're not because we're not being paid equal. We're
1: not being paid equal. Yet. I mean, you, tons of things. So right? many
0: so many right. results. So, yeah. And then
1: should they be? Yeah, period. You'd get an overwhelming majority of Australian men as well as women to agree with that. So my feeling is we have to make it very simple, very plain and present it that way. You know, congratulations, you're all feminists. (laughs) Excellent.
0: We've all graduated. So why do men and women need to be allies, I guess, and what does that tangibly mean? We've just touched on the idea that everyone can be a feminist, they should be, we should all be for everybody. Why does it benefit society? Why would I care?
1: Well, there's several reasons why men men need to be allies um, uh, uh, to to women. Um, The reality is there has never been a reform that women wanted that didn't require men's support who voted to let women vote who voted to let women serve on juries who voted to to let women drive cars you know i mean it or, or go to go to work i mean it just seems to me that that um if we want to we we can't fully empower women and girls without engaging boys and men so we know that you have your you know you have enough on your plate empowering women I'll take on the engaging boys and men. So I want to say to men that gender equality is right. It's fair. It's just. It's also good for business. We also know that companies that are more gender equal are more profitable, higher return on investment, lower labor costs, a whole bunch of things. So it's not only right and fair, but it's also smart. And finally, I want to make the case to men, it's good for you. It'll actually make you healthier, happier, um, better relationships with your family, and who doesn't want that?
0: Absolutely. So simple. We just it make, is. Magic wand make it happen.
1: Well, you know what? We're going to do it in two generations, I think, because here's what I think your children are learning. Um, your children are learning that working and being committed to your career is not something that men do, that dad does and that mom doesn't do. It's something that grown-ups do, right? Not gendered. Same thing, about being caring and loving and nurturing and being involved with the family that's not something that mom does and that dad does only if there's no game on tv that's something that grown-ups do so what your kids are, are growing up learning is not that they're is not to degender people it's to degender what people do being committed to your career is a grown-up thing. When I'm a grown-up, boys and girls will say, I'm going to have a career too. And they're also saying, when I'm a parent, I'm going to be really involved with my pa- my kids. So what we're doing is we're degendering the behaviours. And that, can't, that, that can change things very quickly, I
0: think. Absolutely. So um, final couple of questions. So I'm a big believer that no one gets to where they are on their own. Do you have any significant mentors, inspirational figures that... I guess, have been consistent in your life? And what have they really taught you? I mean, they could be family members. They could be well-known people. It doesn't really matter. I mean, is there anyone that comes to mind instantly?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, there's a few things that I would say about that. Uh, The first, you know, uh, one of the predictors of resilience among children is what the psychologists call a charismatic adult. Some grown-up who sees you, who gets you, who, who really, like, values you. First person in my life to do that was my mother's mother, my grandmother. I don't know how she did it exactly, but I always felt like she saw me. She treated me like a person, not like a like a little child. She listened to me when I had things to say. That was the first person that I really felt got me. Um, in When I talk about these sort of charismatic adults, it could be a parent, of course, it could be a coach. In my case, it was also a teacher. I had one teacher my first year of university. And I thought I was really clever, and I wrote these things the night before the paper was due. I would write my paper and hand it in, and I thought, oh, this is great. He's going to give me an A. And he gave me terrible grades. And he said, this is really good, but you know what? You didn't put any effort into this. This could be so much better. And he pushed back, and he didn't let me get away with it. And I thought, I, I hated him for a bit. I'm <laughs> i sure. really did. Like, it's more work. Yeah, yeah it's more work. But he's the first person to take me seriously intellectually. He said, you really have potential. This is crap. Come on. You can do a lot better than this. You have to revise it. You have to reread it. You have to edit yourself. And I thought, no, you just have to write what you think. And I'm a really good writer. And I just, boom, there it is. And he really, um, so I actually, in in Guyland, when I talked about charismatic adults, I actually um, thanked him. Talked about him a little bit, what he how I had experienced him, and I thanked him, and uh, and then after the book came out, I said, you know that's not enough. I should find him, you know I knew he wasn't any longer at the university I had gone to, so I tracked him down, uh, you know thirty years later, thirty five years later, I tracked him down, and I sent him a copy of the book. He's he was now he's now teaching uh, in the theater and drama department in a university in Canada, and I said. You won't remember me. I just, you know, passed through the night. But I want you to know you had a real impact on me. And he wrote me back this gorgeous letter saying, of course I remember you. I always, I followed your career. I've read your books. Um, Incredible. It was incredible. And so, so I think what, so here's what I take from that. This is important. This was important to me. We can go back to the people that really shaped us and we can thank them even though we suspect that they don't remember us, and very often we change their lives too.
0: That's what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah. And, he remembers you. Yeah, he did. And and every time I'm in the newspaper, he says, I taught him. I was the one who pushed back at him, you know. It was really um because I pushed him I pushed him as well, I think. Um so that's the moral I take from that is we don't recognize sometimes the impact we have on others, including the impact of the mentee on the mentor think about it in the business world for example Absolutely. we always talk about the mentor's effect on the mentee and how great that is which it is but we also don't value the mentee mentor change as well um, my mother did her phd dissertation on uh, cross-sex uh, cross-sex tutoring not cross sex sorry cross age tutoring in a in a public school so what she found was that fifth graders were tutoring second graders. Fifth graders, the, one, the fifth graders that were doing the tutoring were the ones who had problems in math. And so what they did was they had the, the, the kids who were having problems in math in fifth grade tutor the second graders who were struggling in math. Because every fifth grader knows what the second grader's doing, right? Your, your older kid could tutor your younger Absolutely. kid. Absolutely. That's, okay. that's a no-brainer. Right. So here's what happened. The fifth graders' grades went up.
0: So there's the powerful evidence. Right. Of
1: course, the second graders' grades went up because they were being tutored. But we
0: would expect that. But the that. fifth
1: graders' grades went up because they were in an experience where, as you know, you don't really learn something till you have to teach it.
0: Absolutely. And right. and if you're engaged too, you're more likely right. to.
1: So we so it's a two way relationship, and we very often don't focus on the other the other direction.
0: Excellent. So just to wrap up, if as a society we are going to raise these great men, which we are, of course, yeah. two generations, it's all going to be all sorted. What are the top maybe two or three things we really need to address in the politics of raising men?
1: I think as parents, teachers, concerned citizens, communities, I think we have to continually work to provide the counter-narrative to the voices they're hearing from boys about proving their masculinity. Um, They know the answer to this. They know what it means to be a good man. And they're also being told... Don't don't do that. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to your own heart. Don't listen. Don't follow your own morals. Don't see what you see. Don't report it. Don't say anything. You know what I came to say is what happens in Guyland stays in Guyland. So the number one and most important thing is we have to not stop we have to provide that counter narrative we have to develop with them critical media literary, literacy skills so that they can engage with media even as a parent and i know you've already probably experienced this even as a parent when you're watching tv with your kids and watching movies and you know you're saying things like well what do you think about that and how come all the disney princesses are like this you you know and they roll their eyes at you and they say oh mom come on it's just a movie don't stop They need to have that counter-narrative constantly reinforced because you know what they're hearing from others. Parents of girls are hearing the same sorts of things. These girls are not only being told how to keep their knees together, but how they have to be hot for boys, how they have to dress for boys. So they're constantly being fed this. We have to provide that counter-narrative. And we're doing it better for girls.
0: Absolutely, right? We are
1: doing the girl power stuff, the kind of girls' integrity, girls' girls rise kind of stuff very well. We are empowering girls to, to resist that narrative or that narrative alone. But we are not doing our, as well with boys. Got a lot of work to
0: do. Yeah. Absolute pleasure to chat to you today. Um, if you do want to contact Dr. Michael Kimmel, there'll be some details in our show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests, so if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's b e s p o k e c o m s dot and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.